It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 20th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Is anyone happy? Well, no. Yes, maybe. It depends on who you're talking to, what they do, what they were expecting and what they understand happens next. The government, as you know, announced the next phase for lifting COVID restrictions yesterday. The plan has led to a lot of uncertainty. What is certain is that there is a lot of confusion and unfortunately that confusion has led to some amusement. There's a lot of questions. Questions, for example, about nightclubs. Just to confirm, are they going to be allowed to fully reopen and will there be a requirement for social distancing? And if so, how is that going to work? Yeah, there's going to be sector-specific guidance for each sector over the coming days. That will be ardened out and worked out in considerable detail. I think the key overall point that NIFID is making and that we, we agree with is that the protective measures have to involve masks, physical distancing, ventilation, mitigation measures. No, we're appropriate. Um, it's the appropriate use of all of these is how NIFID terms it in their letter to government. So obviously there are practicalities involved in different sectors and those have to be worked out as we have done in the past uh, through sectoral guidance. So does that mean you might not need social distancing in a nightclub? So I'm not going to go into the specific details because I mean it's the generality. The, 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 the overall point here, Sean, is collective behaviour. We all have to behave sensibly um, in terms of, of our engagements uh, and our activities. Um, but what NIFA were clear is that um, they were, their view is that we can reopen the remaining sectors of society, but only on the basis of protective measures being taken. But with respect to a lot of these places haven't of been course, open in 18 yeah. months and they have three days to sort it out. So Yeah, but when, I mean, there will, the be, there will be guidance in respect of those, but that's the basis. Like the vac cert will have to be there. Uh, obviously, people will be able to dance in a nightclub, of course. Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, was explaining uh, to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, there that dancing is one of uh, the things that will be allowed to happen in nightclubs when they open again on Friday. What traditionally happens in a nightclub will continue to happen in a nightclub. Um, but there will be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. um, so... The practicalities will apply, you know, and, and as, as Neffet say in their general advice, um, where various protective measures are appropriate, they're deployed, okay? 
Um, and, and there has to be a bit of common sense applied and so on in, in that respect. We can go to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on the line now. Good morning, Sean. I wasn't sure who to feel most sorry for there. The Taoiseach, who had the job of trying to answer questions that seemed impossible to answer, or you trying to understand <laughs> the answers to those questions because at times they didn't seem to make sense. No, and even in the clip you played there, uh, this you know social distancing will be a big part of the safety measures, but only in some of the circumstances and not in all of them. And it might be needed in nightclubs, and it might not be needed in nightclubs. Um, it, it, I've never been to an announcement where they have openly admitted all three leaders, Eamon Ryan, Micheál Martin, and the Overhiker, who were there, uh, that there are going to be big anomalies in this, and this, it, the advice is not going to be consistent across different sectors. It was just, and, and you can understand a certain amount of that, but it was just the lack of clarity that was actually there on the day, especially for, as I pointed out in the question strategic there, a lot of these places have been closed for so long, and now have very, very little time. A lot of them wanted to open up at uh, a minute past midnight on Thursday, which is, what, 48 hours, more than 48 hours away now, and still the sectoral guidelines are not published and they don't know what measures they're going to have to put in place to do so. So while you can write a certain amount of that off to the fact that no one really thought there would be the uptick in cases that we had in the last week and all these decisions are being made last minute, it does make it very difficult for the sector to do any sort of planning. Okay, so just to be clear, when you go to a nightclub, uh, you'll need a COVID cert. The nightclub will need to check that and they'll need to collect your data. You'll need to be wearing a face mask. Then, when you go inside of the nightclub, you'll need to wear a face mask unless you're eating, drinking or dancing. What else do people do in nightclubs? Well, this is the thing, and it's funny, there's the generational divide and people going, uh, a lot of younger people saying, who would eat in a nightclub, kind of forgetting the chicken curry used to be handed mm. mandatorily uh, uh, upon exit of a nightclub. Um, but, yeah, it's a really weird one. And again, the teacher was asked, well, is it going to be like pubs? Is it going to be table service in a nightclub? So you have to get your drink sitting at a table, but then you'd be able to get up and take your mask off and dance. And he said, uh, oh, we'd prefer it to be table service, but there might be exemptions for the nightclub sector. So if you had, for example, as a lot of places do, a pub downstairs and a nightclub upstairs, you'd be able to move around with your mask off as long as you were dancing and go up to the bar upstairs. Whereas downstairs, you had to be escorted to your seat, table service only, wearing masks and all the other restrictions. So there's going to be quite a few inconsistencies uh, in these guidelines when they do come out. Mm, it's confusing and in some ways it's amusing, but it's very serious. And uh, at the same time, uh, you can't uh, but feel sorry for uh, the three leaders uh, trying uh, to get the country back on its feet uh, in whatever way is possible and at the same time taking on board the public health advice. Uh, I don't know, uh, they're really uh, balancing on a, a tightrope sort of thing. Well, yeah, it's a little bit of a, this kind of was a series of hospital passes really from, because the NEFID advice was quite clear that the full reopening couldn't go ahead when it came to uh, masks and social distancing and the use of the vaccine passports and all that needs to be extended out until February 2022 and that was accepted but then basically said because they don't see the situation improving any time through November that you may as well go ahead with the reopening of nightclubs and the easing of some of the other restrictions mm. on outdoor attendances at large events indoor large events although we might talk about that in a minute because there's a very big asterisk over large indoor events and who they'll be allowed to to let in. Um, and so that was shipped off to government to figure out how to do it. And in many senses, Cabinet yesterday said, OK, we're going to do this, but how it's actually practically done, they've shipped on uh, to Fort Ireland and other people writing the guidelines to figure out how you do it on a practical level. And they now have, you know, what, less than 24 hours from, from the Cabinet meeting yesterday, mm-hmm. really, to come up with workable guidelines and then 
put in place. So you've already seen it, I'm sure. And I know I've seen it. Mm. Friends send me screenshots of events that have been postponed and events that have been cancelled. One event that was, uh, I think it was the 90s, uh, and that kind of 90s disco night, and because the regulations for indoor events now require everyone to be sat down, they said that right, we've sold this at 100% capacity, we can't run it yeah. at 100% capacity. So but do they? First do, come, first serve. do they require people uh, to be sat down? Uh, because, uh, and I don't mean this in any way derogatory, uh, it seems as though by the government's own admission, uh, for that matter, that they're making it up as they go along. They say that they're going to meet with industry today uh, and come to some sort of a, an arrangement. Yeah, but, but again, for a lot of these events that are planned at the weekend, mm. it's, it's no good to them and they have to plan for sitting down. So it's very confusing. I asked the Taoiseach, the, the follow-on question after the clip you played there to, to my question to Taoiseach was, those gigs that are sold indoors and outdoors at 100%, can they go ahead and is there any attendance cap? And he said, no, there is no cap on attendance. But in the guidelines, yeah. it says that indoor events uh, have to be entirely seated. Mm. You are allowed to stand at your seat if you want to have a little dance, but yeah. you have to be entirely seated. And for the most part, you're talking about reducing capacity by 25 to 50% if you're going to have people seated rather than standing. Well, exactly. Well, well, there's two parts here. One, that a lot of those events would have been sold with a certain amount of standing capacity. So even if you put seats in, you are going to have to reduce the capacity there. But also, it's not clear yet whether the social distancing requirement will be needed for those indoor events because Mm. the overall mitigation measures for indoor events include social distancing, but it doesn't say specifically for those large kind of gigs. So if you need to have everyone seated and also need to have social distancing whereby you're taking out at least every second seat, then that's a huge difference. And still, there's no clarity on that this Mm. morning. And not only that, there's the experience involved in all of this. Uh, People would say it's like going into a shop and asking for an apple and being given an orange. They're not the same thing. They're close, but they're not the same thing. There's a lot of people who wouldn't go to a concert unless they could stand, and vice versa. A lot of people who wouldn't go to a concert unless they could sit. Yeah, well, I mean, look, a lot of people listening might say a 90s uh, ballad night might not be for them, but at yeah. least if it's a 90s ballad night, you don't want to be sitting down in a seat for it. You want to be up and you want to be dancing to a five megamix or something, you know? But it, it's a yeah. very different experience, like you say. It's not what they initially bought. And all those people, I presume, will have to be entitled to refunds. Then there's a thorny issue of if you go ahead with reduced capacity, how do you decide who gets those tickets? Is it a first come, first serve? Do you do a lottery? How do you, how do you get it on? Do you hope mm. enough people don't want to go that it sorts it out itself? It's just very complicated. Mm. Uh, but it is where we are, is it not? Uh, and is this not uh, the best that the government can do in terms of planning for this uh, because of how late in the day this uh, has been uh, left on their lap? Uh, they found out on Monday evening at nine o'clock that they were in this situation and they're trying to come up with some plan before the weekend. And, yeah, look, there's a certain amount of that. Obviously, a lot of this is last minute and that the plan was fully reopen and, and go ahead. Mm. But we, we've known since the middle of last week that that wasn't going to be on the cards. And they've been talking about keeping the vaccine passports and other measures uh, since the end of last week. That was plenty of time to have a chat with Tony Hula and even behind the scenes before an effort recommendation and say, right, look, what do you think is coming? Let's start working on a contingency plan. Uh, it would have had four or five days to do that and then mm. it wouldn't be quite as last minute as there because if I, like we were frustrated enough as journalists in the mm. room asking questions about industries that we're not working in. I can only imagine what anyone in an industry that's affected by this watching yeah. yesterday was feeling with the absolute lack of detail and clarity about what is their livelihood that's been shut for 18 months. Mm. So while, uh, you know, it's not something that was yeah. totally unpredictable for that uh, yeah, up until the last 24 hours. Yeah, no, that's a, a valid point. Uh, and likewise, uh, I'm sure a lot of people uh, in the entertainment industry were wondering why is it okay to go to a full capacity stadium to watch a match? Mm. 
will. I suppose the difference is outdoors yeah. um, is, is the big one. And yeah, the, but that won't stop people from hugging each other, from being on top of each other. They won't have to wear masks. There won't be any of uh, those restrictions. No, they won't. Um, and it does, like, if you want to, and I don't want to kind of be a COVID mm. monger because we've, we've had enough of that, but, you know, we are, the Neffet letter was quite stark yesterday about where we are going. They said they don't see this, this, this isn't getting better before yeah. it gets worse. The numbers are going to go up to somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 cases a day and potentially 800 to 1,000 hospital admissions by the end of November. And yet we are opening up the most risky areas for the spread of COVID um, in nightclubs and mm. in those indoor settings and allowing those full capacity. Now, you obviously the big difference is the vaccine. You hope that's going to act as a buffer. But there is sort of a, if not a, I think as the Irish Times put it, it's not kind of a, a cascade of fear, just mm. a little bit of a, a worry, a cabinet still about that. Uh, and if we don't get it right, we're going back into lockdown. That seems to be the message uh, from Neffet and as part of getting it right, uh, we all have to do our bit and to take on board uh, all of the basics uh, when it comes to social distancing, hand washing, cough etiquette, all of that sort of thing, best we can. Uh, but uh, then there's the antigen testing, uh, which they hope uh, will uh, act as a red flag in some circumstances. But a big part of it seems to be compliance with the COVID certificates. Uh, and we heard yesterday that one in three pubs uh, that were checked, one in three pubs and restaurants that were checked, uh, were not fully compliant uh, with uh, the COVID regulations since reopening last July. That's out of almost 10,000 uh, places uh, that that were checked for their compliance rates. Yeah, it's it's the big issue here because they doubled down yesterday saying we're going to stick to the COVID certs and, you know, everyone needs to take their personal responsibility, do everything right. But if the inspections aren't properly happening or if they aren't properly enforced, then that's a huge question mark. And I think that the responsibility of enforcement, particularly of the COVID certs, relies with the HSA and the HSC. And mm-hmm anecdotally is all you need to know if you've been out at all and mm. um, it's very very spotty as to whether they're checking them or whether they're not and some of that isn't 100 percent on the fault of the staff they're, they're up to their eyes completely busy they're just not resourced enough to do it uh, but they need to be and, and they need to be properly checked and enforced if they're going to make a difference the antigen test is interesting it is a fairly sizable about turn from Neffet who has been constantly opposed to it so this this kind of threefold changes one is that if you're a close contact of a confirmed case, you are going to be sent antigen tests in the post. So mm. remember, at the start of the pandemic, you were sent for a PCR, then they stopped that to take the pressure off the system. Now it's going to be an antigen test. So the way I understand that will work is that you'll be posted out a pack of five antigen tests and you'll be asked to self-test every two days to try and pick it up. And then they've asked uh, an advisory committee to examine the use of antigen tests in kind of two further scenarios. One, that it would be made available for people who are going, who feel that they're going to go into to risky scenarios, so that, like nightclubs was the example, that was used there, that you might be available able to avail of a free antigen test before you do that, to, instead of testing at the door. And the other one makes a lot of sense. It's for people who can't get vaccinated for medical reasons. So if they literally can't take the vaccine as much as they might want to, that they might be able to take an antigen test in order to get a COVID pass to go in and have a have dinner or go to a restaurant or a pub or yeah. something like that. So uh, there's the kind of changes. And there was an interest me- interesting message coming from government uh, as well yesterday, I think, Sean, to all of us, uh, that uh, they seem to be asking us to police this our- ourselves, uh, to come together, if you like, and police it. And that if you go to go in somewhere and you're not asked for a COVID cert, to ask why you're not asked for a COVID cert, say that you'd like to be asked for a COVID cert and you'd like that everybody in uh, the establishment would be asked for a COVID cert and maybe not go into that establishment if they didn't ask you for a COVID cert. 
Yeah, Eamon Ryan very much pushing that, saying, look, we have to, you know, the government can't hold your hand through all of this and can't have a regulation down to every bar in the country. So if you do see that happening, maybe consider about whether this is the best place to go in for you. It was kind of mm. suggesting that if they're not checking the vaccine certs, what, what else are they not doing? Are they not wearing masks properly? Are they not hand sanitising at this stage? All that sort of stuff. And you can see, I mean, compliance has definitely mm. fallen off with it, whether it's people going into uh, supermarkets and not everyone washing their hand, hands going in ahead yeah. of you or, or whatever it is. There has been a dip off in compliance. But again, that's kind of, you know, I feel it's a little bit of a cop-out as well. If there was proper enforcement of it, you, you wouldn't have to do that yourself. And it is a little bit of kind of uh, cur- curtain twitching towards your neighbours. I know people who've gone into uh, cafes, for example, and they had, they have COVID so it hasn't been checked and they've asked for it to be checked. And the person has simply just checked their own pass and, you know, not the people who are with them and gone off and gone back to their their, their business. So there does need to be an element of enforcement from the government as well okay. if they're actually, you know, there's no, there needs to be a little bit of fear, I think, when it comes to, to restaurants and bars that if they don't enforce this, there's going to be some sort of ramifications for it. Okay. Well, it seems to be a work in progress. Uh, undoubtedly, we'll be hearing more over uh, the next uh, day or two before uh, the changes take place uh, from Friday. Sean, we leave there for the moment. Thank you, though, as always for joining us on the programme. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, somebody in touch with us asking us, uh, do you need to be vaccinated if you're going to a wedding? I don't think you need to be vaccinated if you're going to a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a registry office or something like that. Uh, but you would need to be vaccinated if you're going into... It's unfortunate that you don't need to be uh, vaccinated going into those places. Uh, but you would, of course, need to be vaccinated going into a hotel or a restaurant or, or something like that uh, where the reception may be taking place. Uh, but why would you be going to a wedding if you're not vaccinated? What do you want to do? Give the bride COVID? Uh, I'm delighted for you. I hope you have many years uh, of happy life uh, together. Uh, I got you a present, COVID-19. Who would go to a wedding without being vaccinated? My God. Uh, somebody else uh, saying, how in the name of God can they predict uh, such numbers uh, and a majority of uh, the country vaccinated? Well, uh, the second point uh, is certainly valid. Uh, they have very good ways of uh, doing the modelling, as uh, they call it, and predicting uh, the numbers and uh, the trajectory of uh, the disease, for that matter. Grania in touch with us saying she was listening to the show yesterday and complaints about restaurants and pubs not checking COVID certs. The way to end this is for the customers to decide not to support those premises who are flouting the rules. If I go to a restaurant that they're not checking for certs, I don't give them my business. Simple as that. If everyone did this, then they wouldn't be too long before they started abiding by the regulations. We all have to take personal responsibility. Thank you indeed, uh, Grania, for your message to the programme as well. Now, uh, let's hear a little bit more about uh, the announcement as it was made yesterday about this latest phase for lifting restrictions. Over the course of the last two weeks, we have seen a worsening of the situation. The number of new infections, the number of people requiring hospital admission, and the number of patients in ICU have all increased. These figures are a cause of concern. They're also a timely reminder of how dangerous this virus remains and the need for ongoing vigilance as we work to protect the very significant progress that we have made together as a nation. Okay, so what's next? Let's hear what's happening from Friday. In line with NEFIT advice, those sectors due to reopen on the 22nd of October may now only do so on the basis that all customers must produce their proof of vaccination and identity. On this issue, I want to give a very clear message. The vaccination programme and the use of COVID passes is how we have been able to open the hospitality sector so far. To stay open, we need everyone to enforce and respect the rules. 
Other changes include the following. In hospitality venues, table service only should remain in place with a maximum of 10 adults per table and a maximum of 15, including children. COVID passes and fixed capacity limits will not apply for outdoor events. However, sectors should ensure appropriate protective measures are in place. Fixed capacity will no longer apply for indoor and outdoor group activities. However, protective measures must be put in place and where groups are mixed indoors, pods of six should apply. Religious services and weddings can proceed as planned without capacity limits, but with all other protective measures in place. Return to workplaces will continue on a phased and cautious basis for specific business requirements and there will be a meeting today of the LEAF Forum where employers uh, and uh, employee representatives um, can discuss the protocols involved. This is the Taoiseach Michal Martin, of course, uh, who was also telling us uh, there's going to be more testing and tracing. Alongside these changes, we've also agreed an enhanced role for the use of antigen testing throughout society. Tests will now be sent to fully vaccinated close contacts of confirmed cases. And we will work with the sectors to develop a role for antigen tests to further improve the safety of certain events and activities, and also work with the expert group on antigen testing in terms of the wider use of such tests amongst the general population. And the Thonestilly of Radker was telling us uh, that we're going to be living with a new normal. So we're going to have to live with COVID. That's not going to be easy. And it does mean adjusting to a new normal for at least the next couple of months. The strategy has three elements, vaccines, test, trace and isolate, and keeping our economy and society fully open, but with protections. So when it comes to vaccines, it's the boosters for the over 60s, encouraging people who are not yet vaccinated to please get vaccinated. When it comes to test, trace and isolate, it's an expansion of antigen testing. Uh, So we'll be resuming testing of uh, fully vaccinated people who are close contacts and have no symptoms, but that'll be done through antigen testing to supplement our PCR testing. And we will be encouraging people uh, who are attending events, um, who are going to be uh, in groups or crowds, uh, to start self-testing and using antigen testing to do that. And there'll be more information on that very soon. And then finally, the objective is to keep our economy and society fully open. We've managed to open most sectors. We're going to keep them open. We're going to open those that are not open yet. But it is going to be with restrictions. Uh, COVID passes for indoor activities, um, masks, um, very strong advice that people who have symptoms vaccinated or not uh, should stay at home, uh, ventilation and physical distancing where possible. All right, that's uh, the tension. Now, earlier we heard uh, Sean Defoe, our political correspondent, asking many questions of uh, the government, uh, questions that the government were finding difficult to answer. Uh, we're going to listen uh, to a little bit of the exchange between Gavin Riley and uh, the Taoiseach. Uh, you'll know Gavin Riley from Virgin Media. He had uh, more questions for Micheál Martin that were just as difficult to answer, I think. You mentioned that there'd be no capacity limits for some events indoors and out, but you did say that there would have to be some safety measures uh, or some other sort of precautions to try and keep it a safe environment. If that were to include social distancing, then wouldn't that mean a de facto cap on how many people can attend? So if you were trying to have safety at an an outdoor sports event, for example, safety in most people's eyes would mean social distancing, which means that it's not actually as as full as they might think. Well, outdoor, I mean, we've been at a lot of sporting events during the summer, um, and outdoors is different to indoors and is much safer. Uh, But again, we're talking about a population that's much more vaccinated now. So um, basically, 
there, there won't be a capacity limit in terms of outdoor events. But then what about if, if you had an indoor event and people have mentioned musical events that have been sold on the basis of full attendance, would they still be de facto required to have social distancing? Well, I think there has to be practical arrangements made there. Again, it's where practicable. Um, we, you know, there, there are going to be anomalies and there's going to be, it's, it's not one clear line across every sector. Uh, and there has to be practical uh, solutions, but obviously. You, right so, but there. You, you couldn't have a full house in the, the three arena. I understand the point you're making, but I do, yeah. yeah, I understand it fully. But I'm, as I'm saying, there will be different uh, approaches in, in, in different situations. Okay. But um, I think people have to clearly show cause and make, you know, in terms of making making any venue or any event yeah. as safe as they possibly can. I'm, I'm sorry to, to harp on again at the nightclub <coughs> example, but um, just on the anomalies that seem to arise then for for nightlife, it seems that you can dance on a nightclub dance floor but you can't go to the bar to get a drink beforehand. So you're expected to get service to your table, but you can leave the table to go to I a dance floor. No, I, I appreciate it. It might sound facetious. I'm, I'm no, not, trying, not, to, I'm not trying to willfully point out yeah. anomalies or complications, yeah, but, are, but they are there. There will be anomalies. I, I said that. I'm straight up with you. There's going to be, there are going to be anomalies. And I, as I said at the outset, we will work out with different sectors, specific guidance, including nightclubs. And I have to be practical, okay? Uh, and I just want to make the point generally, in the, over the last two weeks... There has been a worsening in the cases. Neffet have responded to that, and we've responded to that advice. And obviously the timelines were not ideal in, in, that, in that situation. I, you're quite perfectly, of course, to put the question and, and, okay. and so on. But I am stressing that there will be anomalies. Difficult questions for the Taoiseach, Michal Martin. Not to mention snogging. Uh, James and Navin is worried about snogging as he puts it in nightclubs. Uh, he's worried about a lot of things that will happen in nightclubs. Uh, but uh, if you can't go to the bar, will you be able to snog? He says people are going to be snogging. It's only natural. How do you please that? Well, I think that's why the Taoiseach got the laugh yesterday, James. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. You can snog in nightclubs. Uh, that will be allowable. But thanks for your call. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the board of uh, the HSC decided to close uh, the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. That decision was taken in July when the board also said that as a result of that decision, there would no longer be a requirement for ICU beds in the hospital. So I'm aware, uh, as you will be deputies, that the HSC initiated um, a planning for changes to the services at Our Lady's Hospital uh, in Navan. Uh, I am acutely aware uh, that, the pro- that any proposed changes to health services can be a source of uh, great anxiety and worry for the communities affected and for the people we all represent, and in this case for the people uh, that you represent. And I am absolutely determined that any process and any consideration of changes must happen in consultation with the community in the first instance through their elected uh, representatives. I have therefore instructed the HSE directly to pause any such movements uh, and to engage in a comprehensive manner with the elected representatives uh, on behalf of their community. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. He was speaking in the Dáil uh, yesterday in response uh, to Sinn Féin and we'll be speaking with Sinn Féin uh, a little bit later. But let's first of all hear from the leader and founder of uh, the AIM2 party, Patrick Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West and also the chair of Save Our Ladies Hospital. Uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, it seemed to me that the Minister was acknowledging that the HSE had made this decision and as he said there he is instructed that that would be paused temporarily uh, and that 
if the HSE in time convinces him that the decision to close the emergency department and the ICU will result in saving lives, uh, then he'll want to know how that will be done and he'll be happy about all of that if it's done in the same way as they downgraded the hospital in Lachlanstown uh, because uh, that was something that he supported uh, at one time in opposition and once local politicians are happy, he'll be happy. Would that be your interpretation of what the Minister said last night? Well, yeah, first of all, we welcome the fact that um, the uh, Minister has paused the closure of the A&E and ICU beds in Navan Hospital. It's good news. It's a victory um, in many ways for the Save Navan Hospital campaign. And it shows that when people power comes together um, to organise a rally that we are involved in, that that can have a significant influence on the political system. However, this is just the stay of execution, uh, unfortunately, um, and it is very clear that... Okay. Um, and imagine Thomas Byrne and Damien English would say that they played a, a role in convincing the Minister to do that as well. Listen, I, I have no doubt that uh, you know everybody in, in Mead who's an elected representative would have put pressure on, on the Minister mm. in the last lit, uh, while. However, there's, no, there's also no doubt that if we hadn't organise a rally for 10,000 people that this issue wouldn't have come to the, the political crux that it did come to. Um, the key issue here for us is you know, is this permanent or is it just um, uh, temporary? And the word that the Minister is using himself is that this is paused. So in other words, uh, the definition of pause is that it will actually come back onto the table. Yeah. Well, it's not, um, it seems to be not a question of if, but a question of how and when. Yeah, so like, m- my instinct is that the, the government will look to proceed with this uh, in the next six months, and that's no good for us. We're, we're not looking for the government just to pause this. We're looking for the government to reverse the decision fully to close this ever. Uh, and we're actually looking for the government to put the necessary resources in to the A&E to make it one of the best A&Es in the country, because that's what we deserve in County Mead. And, and as a result, we are proceeding with the the um, the, the march on uh, Saturday, October 30th, at one o'clock in Navan, and we will be asking the people of me to stand up for the most important piece of infrastructure that we have in the county to make sure that the government realise that a pause is just not good enough, that we want a, a functioning health service in the county uh, forever. Uh, it's as simple as that. What if this is the right decision? What if this is the best thing for your constituents? Well, first of all, the best situation, the best decision for the constituents of County Mead would be a properly resourced A&E and ICU bed. Now, yesterday we have had an amazing situation where orthopaedic surgery was cancelled in Navan um, Hospital yesterday. And the reason it was cancelled was because there was an absence of available emergency beds uh, in Navan. Now, you know, that that would happen, you know, that the whole orthopaedic surgery sector would have to come to a grinding halt in, in, in literally two weeks since the HSE started a process of closing those same beds shows you that this is this is actually a domino effect. Without those ICU beds, without those emergency beds, we won't be able to have a functioning even orthopaedic properly uh, in Navin. And, you know, you, you know this yourself, Michael, because you've seen it happen in Dundalk. Once they start to chip away at these key infrastructures within hospitals, other key services start to fall afterwards. And, and, and you know, I hear the HSC make the arguments regularly mm. that there needs to be, there's a safety issue potentially, that there could be a difficulty in the future. You know, the solution to that is to resource the hospital properly so there isn't a safety, safety issue. The yeah, solution but, but, isn't but, to close the A&E. It, it results in services being chipped away, but also services being added to the hospital that has had those services taken out and has the support of another hospital, the Louth County Hospital, 
hospital ha- having the support of the hospital in Drogheda, which is providing more acute care. And they say that, generally speaking, it's working very well in County Louth. The HSE would say that uh, because the HSE's plan is to close these types of A&Es and, and even the language that they use to sell this. like it, it's, an, it's incredible corporate speak uh, where they will actually use positive language to talk about the closure of a key service. You know, if you ask the average person in County Mead at the moment, what is Navin Hospital? I would say that the average person in County Mead will tell you that their experience with Navin Hospital is via the A&E, the Accidents and Emergency. And actually, the, the fact of the matter is, Accidents and Emergency is probably one of the few functioning elements uh, of the HSC at the moment. Most people can get into, can, can get seen for a serious issue within the day uh, that they have that serious issue. And that's not the case throughout the rest of the health service, where there's one million people on, on trolleys. Even doctors now, you know, it can take up to seven days a doctor. What the government wants to replace the A&E in Navin with is an MAU and they want to replace it with a doctor appointment MAU which means you'd have to get an appointment with your doctor which could take three or four or five days and then that they would send you to an appointment in the MAU in Navin. Any dock on call, which is the, the, the North East dock on call, very important service uh, which deals with people um, usually in, the, in an overnight setting. Um, they themselves have uh, said... We're losing you there, Patrick. Any dock and call, apologies, have yeah. said that the this is the the, the North East doctor and call yeah. which deal with uh, emergency uh, difficulties at an overnight setting. Uh, they have said that they are not comfortable whatsoever with the A and E in in Navin closing. Okay. They know that if the A and E in Navin closes, that any dock and call will become the de, de facto emergency room uh, in the county. Okay. Well, the MAU and the dock uh, works uh, uh, on a walk-in basis, uh, uh, so uh, I'm not sure uh, about that uh, referral from uh, well, a GP. That was the the, in, the, the HSE indicated to the doctors, the GPs and maids, that the MAU in Navin was to be a, a doctor appointment okay. MAU. All right. Hadn't heard that before, but we have to leave it there. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. We'll hear more uh, about this in a few minutes' time. But thanks, as I say, to Patrick Tobin uh, of AIN2 and uh, the chairperson of the Save Our Ladies Hospital campaign group. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the plan to close the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is not a, a new one. The plan to turn Our Lady's Hospital into what they call a level, level two hospital goes back some eight years in time. Uh, it goes back to uh, 2013. And in 2013, a smaller hospitals framework uh, was published. And the framework included a list of nine designated uh, hospital, Model 2 hospitals, uh, including Our Ladies in Navin. Uh, eight of the nine, uh, the transitions have happened and Our Ladies uh, in Navin is the, uh, is, is the last one uh, on that list. The HSC has advised that the changes or the proposed changes uh, at Navin are necessary to support safe service delivery on a sustained basis and to address some very real clinical concerns. The HSC the HSE's planning envisages the development, as the deputies will be aware, of a 24-7 acute medical assessment unit, along with a 12-7 local injuries unit, uh, and a, an extended role for the hospital 
uh, in areas including uh, day and ambulatory surgery. That's uh, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Once again, uh, that clip uh, taken uh, from his interaction with Sinn Féin TDs. One of them uh, is Johnny Girk, who's a TD for Me the West and on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. It looks almost certain, despite the Minister's direction to the HSE to pause their plans to close the emergency department, that that's what is going to happen. Yeah, Michael, um, thanks, Michael, for having us on. And um, look, at um, we welcome uh, that it is being paused, Michael, but it does seem, Michael, that, you know, that the Minister isn't happy with the way um, changes are being um, made or implemented, but we seem like uh, we will end up in the same position in the in the long term, short term, medium term, whatever it's going to be. But it does look like Michael that um, we will end up in 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 with the A and E and the ICU being closed. Regardless, that that's what it looks like to yeah. me, Michael. Um, like he's he's going to take um, he's going to meet the um, the HSE management. He's going to meet these clinical uh, supervisor teams. Uh, but we know, Michael, already um, what their position is. And while I'm no expert, Michael, in, in this field, or, or, or I wouldn't claim to be, mm. um, what, what I would be asking, Michael, is where does the people from Mead go? We can't go to Drogheda, it's that capacity. Mm. We can't go to Connolly. Where, where do we go? Mm. These are the questions, Michael, that I would be asking if we, get, if we get in on those meetings. Yeah, well, I suppose the other question that needs to be asked is would it be safer to go somewhere else uh, if it's not safe to go to Navin? And I'm sure if you were the minister, you'd be listening to the expert advice from uh, the people in the HSE. Having said that, Stephen Donnelly told you last night that he wants to get more information about all of this. What I want to see is I want to see the details of all of these proposals. Uh, I want these details to be shared with the elected reps. I want these details uh, and these proposals to be discussed in detail uh, with the elected representatives. If it is the clinical view, I'm advised it is. If it is the clinical view that what is being proposed will save the lives of the people that you represent. I want us all to hear that from the senior clinical team on the ground. I want them to tell us that. If they believe that this is going to save lives, I'm advised they absolutely do believe that, then we need to hear that. We need to hear it directly from them. Right. That's the argument that they need to to win, Johnny Girk. Would it save my life or your life if they close the emergency department in Avon? Well, I know, Michael, for a fact, Michael, I know a couple of people, Michael, that was at, at football matches in, in, in Park Charlton, Michael, and their lives were saved, Michael, because they, um, the A&E uh, was beside them in, in Navan when they needed it. And, I, and, and Michael, I, I, I know these people um, for a fact, so I don't think these people's lives would have been saved only for the A&E. And again, Michael, the HSE want to close this, so they're going to um, gloss it up anyway they want, Michael. But what, what, what we need to say, Michael, is where, where is the people going to go? Like, you know, the, these are the questions, Michael. We will sit down, Michael, and of course, um, I would love to be involved in, in, in the negotiations, mm. in, in, in the dialogue. But, um, like, they, they're the questions, Michael. Where does the people go? You know, um, they tell us about what lives it would save. Like, but what lives would have been lost, Michael, if that A&E wasn't there for the last number of years? OK, well, I think the answer to the question is uh, the matter. Uh, but let's say I had a heart attack today, uh, went into cardiac arrest uh, and needed emergency surgery, needed a, a, a double bypass. Uh, would I be better off being going, being brought to Navin or being brought to the matter? 
Well, Michael, the man I'm telling you about, Michael, had a heart attack in, 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 in Park Talton and he went to Navin Hospital, Michael, and his life was saved. And if he had to go any further than Navin Hospital, Michael, he, he would tell you himself that he wouldn't be alive today. Mm. Was he operated on? He, he, well, he was, Michael. He was operated mm. on, yes. Mm. Where? Um, well, I'm not sure now, Michael. Where, mm. but well, but most likely... He was mo- Michael, yes, he was, well, that's, he was that, that, but that, that's the point. He was stabilised in Navin and then had to be moved on. Well, Michael, I don't know if he was moved on or not, but I was talking to um, a friend of his only yesterday, Michael, and he told me that that man would tell you today that only for Navin Hospital was beside him. And, and Michael, you know mm. yourself, like, take Park Talton, Michael. There's, there's games in there, Michael, where there's 12,000 people. Like, you have you have tar mines, you have all mm. these big employment. And where are they going to go, Michael? If they have to go to um, to Drogheda, to Connolly, to the matter, and take my own area down here, Michael, in North Mead, like, um, wh- where do we go? We have to bypass Navin to go to Drogheda. Mm. We have to you know, where people are already waiting for hours. But do you want to be taken to a hospital to be stabilised so that you're put back in an ambulance to be moved on to another hospital to be operated on? Michael, um, the closest hospital always seems to be the best place to go, Michael, for anybody that um, that that needs these services, like like the man that was in um, mm. in Park Talton. Well, no, I mean, just to make the point that the minister said there that there were nine hospitals on this list, and they've closed the emergency departments in eight of those hospitals, and. We're not hearing uh, of the sky falling in anywhere else, including in County Loud, uh, which was one of the hospitals, the Loud County Hospital in Dundalk, where if you had a heart attack uh, up in Dundalk or in Carlingford, you'd be brought down to Drogheda. Yeah, well, Michael, look, Michael, we, we, we'll sit down, Michael, uh, as elected reps, Michael, I'd love to be involved in those um, talks and listen to what the HSCs, listen to what these um, specialist clinical teams have to say. But, Michael, the thing about it is, Michael, we'll go back to it, and time and time again, Michael, where is the people going to go? Are they going to go to Drogheda that's already overcrowded? How can that be safe, Michael? Are we going to go to Connolly where they're talking about going on strike? Where, where, where Michael, do you go? Mm. That's, that, that's what we need to know. But if this you can't go to Navin. And if it is safer, how is it safer, Michael, to go to uh, Drogheda and sit on, on a trolley for hours and hours when you can go to Navin and be seen straight away? But this is the point uh, the Minister was making. It's a question. The question you're asking uh, is a valid question he was saying and one he welcomed. Uh, but it's a question that's been asked nine times over or in nine different areas. Uh, this is the ninth area. It happened on eight occasions previously. One was in his own backyard and the minister was in opposition at the time uh, and he spoke to you about the decision he made to support downgrading his local hospital and we'll hear just a little bit of that now. I understand that this is a very serious issue for the local communities. My own community was involved in exactly this small hospital framework, Lachlanstown. Uh, changes were made. I backed those changes from opposition, and I'll tell you why I backed them. Because I, along with all of the elected representatives, the five TDs met the senior clinical team. And I asked the senior clinical team, was it their unanimous view that this would save lives? And we were all told that this would save lives. And in fact, the real story was how many lives had it cost not doing this earlier? So that's what I heard as as an opposition TD. And based on that, I said, okay, Well, if the experts, if the doctors are telling us this is going to save lives, then this is something I will back, right? Ultimately, um, it was the right call. Ultimately, it has saved a lot of lives. But the process wasn't done properly because because people like you and I were left to explain it to the public. The clinicians uh, were nowhere to be found. All right, uh, that's Stephen Donnelly. 
Uh, if it worked there, if it worked in Loud, uh, why wouldn't it work in Avon, Johnny? Well, well Michael, um, like the HSC will tell you one thing, but, but we're listening to lots of doctors, Michael, that work in Avon Hospital, and they're telling us, Michael, that downgrading off service in Avon Hospital will cost lives. Uh, that's, that's what they're telling you, Michael. It, the HSC can... Uh, dress it up anyway they like Michael and uh, they probably have their mind made up that they're going to close it Michael so they have to try and defend that as best they can. Well they decided uh, I mean uh, as you know from uh, the letter to staff uh, the decision was made in July when the board met that they decided to close the ED and with that the ICU beds yeah, well, that's it, Michael. So, I mean, the only ones, Michael, is that can stop this, Michael, is people pressure. And, and, and I would like to thank everybody involved from all political parties that did put the pressure on the minister to reverse this decision. And it shows you, Michael, that the minister can reverse this decision by, 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 by making a phone call to the HSE and, and putting the investment into Navin Hospital that is needed and not downgrading services. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, I think we'll be hearing more about this uh, in uh, the coming days and weeks. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning as well. Sinn Féin TD from Mead West, uh, Johnny Gurk. Thanks uh, to Seamus, who is in Dundalk, uh, who's in touch with us. uh, And he says there's a collective responsibility on everybody to make sure that we try and halt the rise in the number of COVID cases. That's if we want to prevent us going back into another lockdown. Uh, it would seem to be the warning from Neffet, all right, Seamus, uh, who goes on to say that the figures uh, as they stand are very worrying. Seamus, 2,400 almost, uh, just under that yesterday. Seamus is surprised that the government is allowing nightclubs to open up again under these circumstances. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, Seamus. Uh, and thanks uh, to the caller as well about uh, the hospital in Navan saying, what about uh, the 800 employees in Tara Mines? Uh, and if something goes wrong there, where are they going to go? And I think that's a point that Johnny Gurk was making with us as well today. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're in Counties Louth or Mead, as most people listening to us this morning are, the Public Health Department North East is urging you to be extra vigilant and act responsibly in order to minimise the spread of COVID-19 in our local communities. Let's talk to Dr Augustine Pereira, who's the Director of Public Health Northeast, and a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program. You say there's a particularly high incidence rate locally. Would you begin by putting that into perspective for us? Because I think uh, the rate nationally is around 394 per 100,000 of the population. How do local areas compare with that? Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, just in terms of the rates in the Northeast, I mean, we, we uh, in the Department of Public Health monitor the trends uh, over a period of time, and uh, so far we have been seeing a decline in, in the, rate, uh, the numbers notified to the Department of Public Health in the Northeast, which covers the four counties of Cabin, Monaghan, and Louth and Meath. But last week, uh, we noticed a change in the trend. So uh, just to illustrate that, until the previous week, we were seeing uh, numbers in the region of 900 cases notified per week. Uh, during the last week, we saw a jump in the cases to 1,300 cases in the Northeast. That's a 42% increase compared to the previous week, and we were not expecting that increase. Uh, if we break that down a little bit further into cases in Louth and Meath, uh, we think the increase in Louth and Meath is about uh, closer to the region of 60% increase. So um, we, our duty is to inform the public that, you know, there is a lot more COVID in the area. 
so that people can be aware that there is a higher risk of COVID uh, in the in the region. Okay, and possibly more at risk here uh, than in some other parts of the country, at least. Uh, and we know that there's a very high incidence rate uh, with. Uh, Close on 2,000 now almost every day, indeed, almost 2,400 cases reported yesterday. But that rate of 394 per 100,000 of the population pales in comparison to the local figures in the Kells local electoral area. It's 550 or thereabouts, pretty much the same in Navan, in Rathout as well, uh, and in Dundalk, Carlingford, Europe at around 500 cases per 100,000 of uh, the population, a 42% increase. Uh, has that taken you by surprise? Uh, the, as I mentioned, the most recent change in the last week has taken us a little bit by surprise. We weren't expecting this jump um, and we were trying to understand why. So if we just think about what's happening here, I mean, this, there is increased social mixing. Uh, and, the, and with an increased level of virus circulating in the community, it's, you're more likely to come in contact with the virus. Mm. It's a perfect combination there of uh, conditions to, uh, to help with the transmission of the virus from a COVID perspective. You know? So um, what can we do is the big question. Mm. Uh, and I guess, um, can we decrease social mixing, uh, do it safely, do it outdoors, and if indoors, continue with precautions like good ventilation, mask wearing, hand hygiene. The, the things that we've always talked about so long and for the past 18 months are still so important to reduce our individual risks. But again, if you look at it, can we reduce the amount of virus circulating in the, in the community? Of course, we can. And uh, that is why we are alerting the public so that public can be aware of the risk around us. If there is a lot more virus, you're more likely to come in contact with the virus. So uh, what we can do on an individual basis, but also collectively, is that if you have any symptoms, assume it's COVID and assume you need to um, restrict your mood, isolate and avoid socializing, avoid going into work or school, get a test as soon as you can or contact your GP to check it out mm-hmm. and isolate until you have no symptoms. And that, that is that individual actions that every single individual can take. And that means if you have a cough or a fever or headache, sniffle, that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, the mm. predominant symptoms um, is fe- fever, mm. fatigue, and um, uh, if you have shortness of breath, you're in for a more serious form of the infection. Okay, and Thankfully, Professor Philip Nolan said recently that if you go out and live as you normally would, if you have symptoms like that, it's like drink driving. Uh, you're putting other people's lives at risk. There, there is a bit of personal responsibility here, isn't it? It's, uh, especially going into the winter period, we know there's likely to be a lot more infection and respiratory infection is quite common in the winter, we know. So that's the time period for us to be more cautious. It could be COVID, it could be flu, we're beginning mm-hmm. to see flu season coming in, uh, but it could be other respiratory viruses like the respiratory syncytial virus. In young children and young individuals, we see a lot of the respiratory viruses as well. Mm. So if you have these symptoms, uh, for, uh, and again, this is why we're appealing to the people, because people have been amazing when we've uh, previously alerted the public that we are concerned about an increase in COVID. Mm. Uh, we have subsequently seen a decrease, or at least a, uh, a numbing down of the numbers uh, in, in our region. And that is only thanks to the um, 
people and people have actually taken heed of the advice and been a bit more cautious when moving around. What we are now seeing, and I'd like to also uh, highlight this, is that the cases are rising across all ages in the most recent week. We're seeing a lot more cases in in the 30s and the 40s age group, but also in the elderly population. We're beginning to see outbreaks in residential care facilities. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're issuing this alert for people to pay particular attention to all the public health advice that we're mentioning throughout the past 18 months. But more importantly as well, if you've not had the vaccine, please do go and get it because it does protect you. It does protect your family. It it offers a protection to the community because collectively we have huge, large numbers. Uh, We are able to prevent the numbers of people who are susceptible to the vaccine. Okay, uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that in a a moment if I I could. Uh, But for people who are vaccinated, uh, the vaccines are waning, uh, they say, and uh, that puts uh, older people in particular uh, at risk and we're going to see more people vaccinated. But already we've seen uh, boosters available to the over 80s. I was talking to a woman the other day and she says, but sure, I've already had two of them. Do I need another one? Yeah. Well, let's not forget the um, protective wall that the vaccines have um, uh, given us. I mean, it's it's um, to see the n- numbers of um, people with COVID. Yesterday, it was uh, close to 2,400 in the country. And uh, yet the numbers of people in hospitals and uh, in uh, ICU is a lot lower compared to uh, what we would have seen if we didn't have a vaccinated population. So the uh, the vaccine vaccines are saving lives on a daily basis, and mm. that's great. But you need yeah, a booster, do you? Of, if you've, if you, I'm sorry, you do need a booster if, you, if you've had the two. If you're being asked to get the booster, you should go for it, should you, doctor? Absolutely. And NIAC have looked into the evidence for who needs the booster. They have extended it now to anyone about the age of 60. So anyone in that age group between 60 to 80 who have not yet mm. had the vaccine will be offered it fairly soon. And we know that the vaccine program has been one of the success stories for the HSE. And I, I have every trust in my colleagues in the, who are rolling out the vaccine program to make that available mm. to those people who are eligible now in that 60 to 80 group to get that booster. And the booster does help in your uh, immune response. Um, uh, there is an, uh, an element of waning immunity over this time period, which is why NIAC have actually recommended boosters. And they prioritize people in Mm. whom the immune response may not be as robust as some of the younger healthy people for whom the immune response will continue to uh, be at a good level with the two doses. Okay, we've been hearing from a a lot of people who have not been vaccinated and won't get vaccinated. And uh, we've been trying to explain to them that they need to get vaccinated to protect themselves and others from this virus. But uh, they aren't listening to us, Dr. Pereira. Maybe you could explain to them why they need to get vaccinated because uh, we heard from somebody the other day who actually said to us, there's no COVID, uh, that they're only making it up. Uh, and the reason they're doing that is to sell these vaccines. And the vaccines are dangerous because they haven't been tried and tested. What do you say to that? Because you're a doctor after all. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's very disheartening to hear uh, those kind of stories of people who don't believe in COVID. And they are, they are by far one of the extremes in society, perhaps, and uh, not, uh, not the co- uh, hopefully not the common story here that we're hearing. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I would say is that uh, vaccines are effective. They have saved lives um, and uh, they protect 
you, they protect your family, they protect your community. And it is our best hope now, with, especially with numbers going up as well. Mm. So do go get your vaccine. There are many people who are a little bit hesitant about getting the vaccine, mm. possibly because they haven't had the opportunity to hear about the evidence and uh, read up. And uh, and we know people um, ha- access information in many different ways. Mm. The modes of um, reaching out to people by far has been through mass media. And uh, thank you very much to yourself and everyone on the show for promoting the vaccines. Mm. I would also say that many people probably rely on word of mouth. So uh, if you and that's why we are encouraging individuals who've had the vaccine, but also Mm. businesses, employers, everyone to promote the vaccine because vaccine is certainly going to help us along with all the other measures that we've talked about trying to get much better protection. Sorry for question. I was talking to somebody uh, the other day who was talking to somebody else who had read on the internet that they're putting microchips into the vaccines uh, and they were wondering if that's true. Is that true, doctor? Completely false. Uh, Okay. Uh, So that's just nonsense uh, and (laughs) you'd be very foolish to believe that that's the case. Uh, uh, And somebody else was saying uh, that some of these vaccines are poisonous, uh, that they're uh, bad for you, that they could actually kill you, that this is part of some global move uh, to have a smaller population in the world to depopulate uh, the globe. Uh, Is there any truth in that? Yeah. Look, in Ireland, we have had good information from the National Immunisation Office and from HSE. Mm. There are elements that want to spread misinformation. So once again, my plea would be to seek authoritative sources of mm. information and trust your uh, your authoritative mm. sources. Well, you're an, esteemed, you're an esteemed medic and I can feel your eyes rolling from here uh, and uh, trying not to scoff at the people that are saying this. Uh, but there's 300,000 people who have not got vaccinated. Some of them can't, obviously, and uh, some of them uh, have decided not to, whether it's for all of that nonsense uh, that they're reading on the internet or whatever the case is. Uh, hopefully they'll be convinced by listening to you and your expert medical advice that all of that is false information it's wrong it's not true and that the vaccines can protect them and the people that they love and the people in their community and so on but there's another cohort of people that maybe you'd like to talk to as well uh, 70,000 apparently who got the first dose of the vaccine but never went back for the second dose Uh, Absolutely, Michael. So uh, we do need people to complete their course of um, uh, vaccination uh, uh, so that it can confer them the protection that they need. With one dose, it offers roughly in the region of about 30% protection, and the second dose increases that to close to 80 to 90% protection. So uh, please go ahead and book your second dose or walk in. There are many walk-in vaccination centers. You can walk into your vaccination center If you do prefer to go to your local pharmacy, there are some participating pharmacies as well, and you can look it up on the HSE website to find out which is your closest participating pharmacy, and you can go there as well. Mm. We hope people uh, will listen for their own sake uh, and the sake of others, uh, but we hope that they will listen uh, and uh, heed your expert advice uh, this morning uh, if uh, they haven't uh, been listening uh, to what uh, is being said by uh, people who are working in the health service uh, and are getting their information elsewhere. Maybe uh, what you've said this morning might make some difference and may, might make them see some sense. Uh, and indeed, the rest of us uh, who are vaccinated at this stage uh, will take heed as well because uh, the incidence rate is very high in the community and we should 
remember all of the basics, the things that we all know about washing our hands and keeping distant and all of that. Uh, Dr. Pereira, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you, Michael. And can I thank every single listener out there as well for uh, heeding public health guidance here. Absolutely. Thank you indeed. Dr. Augustine Pereira is uh, the Director of Public Health Northeast. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, we were talking on uh, the programme yesterday uh, about funding uh, which will be made uh, to uh, Drogheda and its environs, uh, the northeast, uh, generally speaking, and the implementation of uh, the Giran Report recommendations for community projects in particular, which uh, the government says uh, will prioritise uh, applications uh, from uh, this uh, part of the world under a €2 million Euro community fund scheme. Uh, following on from that, uh, we heard from Anna McKenney, uh, Anna McKenna, beg your pardon, of uh, the Drogheda City Status Group and founder of uh, the Money More Community House, uh, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Anna, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us, uh, because we're talking about uh, projects uh, that may make applications, uh, and one application has already gone in for funding. Uh, tell us a, a little bit more about the situation in the Money More Child Care Centre. Good morning, Michael. Um, the application went in shortly after we met with um, Martin O'Brien from live meat education board and we had a great meeting with with the board and discussed everything but i think if it can come on in on this way the administration of the whole area is bad i think drada's administration is a key we are too centralized of a government and we have no devolved power our councillors there's 10 in drada there's 13 in the dock and there's six in rd what chance is drada getting anything from that Mm. So we need to go into the whole administration of it. We've no IDA office in Drogheda. Leo Varadka was here a few weeks ago and said that he agreed that Drogheda was uh, disproportionately represented in IDA and a call for city status has, has been feasible. We have been saying this for nine years and it only took the death of that chap to bring this forward. Guerin's report has been brilliant, but we, it's welcomed and it has a potential turning point and it confirms, confirms serious neglect of Drogheda region by local and national government for many, many years. And that's the basis of all our problems. We need to get a proper administration within the greater Drogheda area. Mm. Just very briefly tell us uh, about the work of uh, the Money More Child Care Centre, uh, why it's important uh, and uh, what it needs now. Well, th- this need was identified over 30 years ago. And it started in the community services centre. Mary Clark was manager then, and Helen McCardle and Dr. Ted Fleming. And I give courses on budget cooking for the people of Moneymore in the in the community centre. And then I saw saw the possibility of getting a house up there. So we got a house up there in Brenton Hoy, and then Drogheda Corporation was great because you could walk in and you could talk to people and you knew them, and then you you and they did. Trojan work up there for the people of Money More. Um, the people then themselves started a walk-in crash and it developed from that. And that's over 30 years ago. And I think it's wrong that, that they have to nearly beg to get money to keep things going. Mm. Um, Martin O'Brien, um, principal of Diffie, and a few others came over with me to go around the Money More estate. And I think they were very impressed. And I have no doubt whatsoever that Martin O'Brien will do his utmost to work for Drogheda. But we called for a Supremo to be put in, like the one in Limerick, 
Con Murray was put into Limerick and changed the whole outlook of Limerick. Yeah. And that's what we need in Drogheda. And the money more people can zoom into that to and other. We also well, I, I don't know. Is that, not, is that not meant to be Michael Kyo, uh, uh who's uh, heading up the implementation group? Yeah, well, I would, I would wonder now, taking personalities out of it, mm. was Michael Kyo interview and asked would he like this position I don't know I don't know anything about him I mean we've we've been been asking the the local radio station have been asking for him to come and speak to the people uh, to to avail of uh, the service to speak to the people in the area Uh, and uh, I don't know he's not available maybe this is an imposition put on him and said you have to do it I think you need somebody with a will and a passion to do it yeah. I think Martin O'Brien has, or Michael, mm. Martin O'Brien has. Oh, well, Martin O'Brien did speak to us, and uh, yeah, he did I say think he, he has to do that passion. So yeah, yeah. And I think we need to set up some yeah. sort of a forum within Drogheda. We used to have a community forum, yeah. mm. and it worked very well. And uh, something like that needs to be done because Drogheda has been neglected for far too many years. We've been hearing from Fasten uh, recently because they're on the brink of closing their doors, uh, providing addiction services, the mm. Family Addiction uh, Service Network, uh, and to stop them from closing their doors, they've been out with the begging bowl for a GoFundMe a fundraising uh, way of getting money to keep them open. Uh, and it's the same with uh, the crash in Moneymore, the Moneymore Childcare Centre. Uh, they have a, a GoFundMe That's thing. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and this is front and centre, isn't it? Uh, uh, because you're talking about uh, the, the, the mothers and the young children in Moneymore at one end, and you're talking about uh, where things go wrong in between that and adolescence and young adulthood uh, at Fasten uh, when they need support for drugs. 25 years ago, we did a survey in Moneymore. Mm. And two years ago, a survey was done and exactly the same or much to exactly the same results were shown. Nothing was done in that 25 years in between. No. So that's what's happening. And if I was a TD in in this area, I'd be ashamed to feel that those people had to go begging for money. Mm. I would do what your man down in Cork did. Say he was going to resign if he didn't get what he what he needed for his area. Yeah, well, what happened in that twenty five years, I suppose, was that the childcare centre <laughs> opened. Uh, now it needs a, a new kitchen. It needs uh, resurfacing of the play area, and it yeah, needs. But the painting. fight to get that open yeah. and the mm. fight to keep it going and yeah. the ongoing fight and there's other things up there too that that are, are great. At least Clary's working up there very hard and mm. Tina Carney, and it needs support. But it's again back to the administration. We need some sort of administration in the greater Drogheda area and I'm delighted to see that the Mayor Byrne has called that the two councils East Mead Council and Drogheda councillors get together they should be working together as a united for uh, the greater Drogheda area and it's only then when they have their their, um, administration set up properly with correct funding sufficient funding that they can spend the money as needed that's only when all this is going to be sorted out, not um, by little bits and pieces and somebody coming on the radio and saying, Mm. we're going to get this and we're going to get that. It should be a whole group of people together, as the Gurnan Report has done, and he has outlined everything in it. Mm. But the important thing is that that Gurnan Report is a turning point, and if it's done properly, resourced, this report and its recommendations and its actions and other initiatives can be the turning point for the greater drought area and it'd be terrible if we don't take advantage of that. Okay, well, nothing's happening Uh, (laughs) very quickly anyway. I'm not great at speaking, as you can hear, but I passionately believe that drought has been neglected for so long, Mm. 
it's time somebody stood up and spoke for them. Uh, well, I think a lot of people would be happy to hear you speak up uh, for I people in, in Drogheda and uh, for that better. But uh, I, I don't think anything is happening particularly quickly. Uh, if anything is happening at all, and time will tell how effective that will be. But thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Anna McKenna of uh, the Drogheda City Status Group there. Now, thanks uh, to Lisa in Navan who has WhatsApped us. Lisa said, I said something about uh, going to a wedding. You wouldn't be going to a wedding if you're not vaccinated because what you want to do, give the bride COVID. Uh, I think Lisa actually took exception to that. She said you can still give the bride COVID even if you're vaccinated. Vaccination doesn't stop you getting or transmitting the virus, only the severity of the symptoms. How many times does that need to be said? It doesn't matter, Lisa. Um, it, It just... Would you stop fighting common sense? Stop trying to come up with a a smart answer. Just do the responsible thing. Don't go to a wedding if you're not vaccinated. Don't go into shops and mingle with people and go around not wearing masks and all of that other stuff if you're not vaccinated. Get vaccinated if you can get vaccinated and do your bit. All that stuff about all oh, this, that, and your, that's just being smart. Stop trying to be smart. Try for once to be sensible, protect yourself and the people around you because we all might live for some time longer than we would otherwise and be able to remember all of this and to say, well, we did our bit and we helped keep each other alive. But thanks for your text all the same. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, fur farming is uh, about uh, to be banned and with that, uh, three mink farms uh, will close in uh, this country. It's not just uh, fur farming, but the farming of animals for fur or skin uh, will be illegal under an amendment to the Animal Health and Welfare Act when that is introduced. Let's talk to John Carmody, animal rights campaigner and founder of Animal Rights Action Network. That's Aaron, which worked on the campaign to ban fur farming in this country for 20 years or so. Good morning to you, John, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, This uh, is undoubtedly great news because, uh, in particular with mink, it's exceptionally cruel, isn't it? Well, it is. And, I, you know, I kind of was scratching my head yesterday when we got the news that it was being brought to Cabinet again um, for the memo to be signed off, which means essentially that by... um, January 2022 that fur farming will actually be done Michael in this country so um, after years and years of hard work by ourselves and so many other people and so many other groups you know our, our fruits have came to bear so we're it's 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 a great day I suppose for animals in this country but it seemed like forever that this was just going on and going on and going mm. on and going back and forth and stuff but I, I suppose the good news now is, is that we're, we're we're looking forward to um, January 2022 so we definitely have something to celebrate for sure Okay what will happen to the 120,000 mink because apparently there's that many of them across uh, the three farms which are in Leash, Donegal and Kerry well, they all would have been, it would have been kind of in a winding down, um, essentially. They got a word about two years ago when it first broke on the um, uh, the Irish Examiner, actually, that fur farming was to be uh, banned in this country. So I suppose there would have been no more breeding of mink roughly after that announcement. And as a result, the farms would have been winding down their operations. And I believe, um, you know, there's one farm already, the the daisies and the, the weeds have started growing in the farm and, and, and quite rightfully so to be quite frank with you. It's about the only good thing that would have came out of um, uh, that particular farm as a matter of fact. Okay, because uh, uh, there was talk about culling uh, the mink population, wasn't there, uh, under the fears about variants of COVID? 
That's right. And there would have been problems, actually, we would have heard of, of in, in Denmark, as a mm. matter of fact, and in yeah. Greece, too. Um, def- definitely with Denmark, there would have been um, a big problem um, with COVID on the fur farms over there. there the Denmark is literally littered with fur farms, so there was a, a huge problem um, with regards to COVID. So we, I don't think we had it here. The farmers were tested in this country, and thankfully they came back here. Um, so we didn't have that problem as such. But any of these particular farms um, are, are waiting uh, to to show up with with, the, with COVID cases for sure. Any, anywhere where there's intensive mm. farming of animals, there's going to be problems with this type of um, issue with COVID, for instance. Okay, so, uh, we we won't have that in this country, thankfully, at least with this particular issue with fur farms. So, um, And I'm hoping that with, with Denmark, as a matter of fact, mm. having so many farms, that we, we'll probably, you know, they'll have to wind them down as, eventually as well. Because yeah, the, they called the mink population there, didn't they? did and that had mm. a huge amount of animals to to um to call as a matter of fact but here's the thing as well mm. consumer sentiment um, michael has changed there's people sitting at their breakfast table this morning listening to your show right now mm. um and these are people that you know don't want any part um in this trade anymore back in the 90s as i've been saying for a hell of a mm. long time mm. you know we used to send off vhs cassettes to people in the post about a hundred of them every month um, big chunky t- cassettes to show inside of four farms yep. in the US and around the world. Um, but now it's very simple. With the click of a button, you can literally go inside of a fur farm and you can see how these animals are being killed. And thankfully, people um, are joining the dots and they've, most would never be caught dead wearing a full-in fur coat anymore. Not even just mm. that, even you know, a trinket or a fur-lined jacket, most people would turn their back in it. And it's very hard well, to put dozen, a designer. They put dozens of them into a, a big bin of sorts and then gas them, don't they? That's exactly how yeah. it's done in this country. Mm, yeah. And believe it or not, we had about six fur farms at one stage and we we didn't just have mink, we actually had um, Arctic fox as well. And it was heartbreaking yeah. to see the investigations back in the 90s um, of those poor animals languishing mm. on those cages. Uh, so they were kind of phased out. Well, we they're very expensive the clothes, uh, but at the same time, I don't know how anybody wouldn't be too embarrassed to wear uh, a mink scarf or a fur coat. Uh, this won't uh, just apply to mink. It's cats, chinchillas, dogs, foxes, mink and weasels, including stoats, apparently, according to the Irish Times today, which uh, also reports that there's going to be compensation for the farmers and reading that report in the paper I'm surprised to hear what you're saying about the tumbleweed or the weeds growing where there used to be mink because it's reporting that the compensation package across the three farms will be between four and eight million euro well let them take it and let them run with it as a matter of fact those places are shut down now thankfully and good riddance to them are they so what are they getting compensated for well I I, I, me, myself, personally speaking, I don't want to see anyone out of a job. I've yeah. never got involved in animal rights to, to get people out of jobs. No, no. We had to move away from from relying on on the exploitation of animals. And there are so many other industries that we need to talk about and we need to um, to call out. And I think that's already starting to happen as a matter of fact. And while we've seen, Michael, over the last couple of years with the changes that we've had to make in our lives as a result of covid the next big change we need to make in our life is our use of animals and our reliance on animals as a matter of fact. Um, there's no more justifying all this senseless cruelty that's taken place out there. Those days are gone. The curtain has well been pulled back. The wall, with our bare hands as a matter of fact, has tore down every goddamn brick that has hidden all this exploitation and all this cruelty from public view. Now the conversation needs to shift towards 
how I can be a better consumer or a more kinder consumer. Mm. I think that's where we need to go with this one. But um, that's kind of where we would stand with this for sure. Okay, so you don't really have a problem with the compensation package that will be offered to them? I, I'm happy that those places um, are it's seeing... W- it's Dumbledore worth the cost. Yeah, it's a lot of money, four to eight billion euro. I'm sure they were making a, a lot of money. I mean, I think that's evident if uh, you go into that first shop uh, that's uh, at the bottom of Grafton Street in Dublin. Uh, I presume it's still there, but those clothes are very expensive. It, it, there's, I, I know that store very, very well. And um, uh, yes, they're still there. I just don't know who um, is still wearing that or who would have the would have the, the gall to even wear a full in fur coat in this day and age. It just doesn't happen. You are pushed and hard pressed to find a, a high street clothing store or a top designer that will have anything got to do with fur. But equally in saying that, the conversation, it might be slightly uncomfortable, Michael, for listeners or people right now, but we now have to start questioning exotic skins those handbags and those shoes made of snakes and, oh. and stuff. Oh, we now have no, to Okay, okay, okay. Uh, we'll, wool and all the other yeah, we'll, we'll, we, no problem. We'll come back to that, John, <laughs> one step at a time. Uh, the fur farming will be relegated to history from January. Thanks, John Carmody, animal rights campaigner and founder of Animal Rights Action Network, or Aaron. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.